Um, you know, when we came, uh, the Sunday that we left here as the, the, first, um, the first Sunday that I was the interim pastor, when we left, we knew that there was something different about this church. We'd been to many churches. I'd been the interim pastor at, at two other churches in Kansas City. And this was a different church. It was a different personality. There was a maturity here. There was a desire to serve God. There were men and women who truly know the, knew the word of the Lord. And uh, we've, we immediately fell in love. So it was a very easy decision then a, a year ago for us to step into a new leadership position as a senior pastor. And uh, so we thank you for the relationships that have been formed and what a privilege it's been to be with Pastor Tom. He's just a wonderful, godly man who's become a good friend of mine and I learn from him and it's just a privilege for me to, to be a part of his family and a part of his team. So thank you for loving both of us. Uh, it's an honor to be a part of this church family. This weekend, uh, we had the privilege of, of uh, being with all of my family, all of our family. Um, my niece got married and uh, invited me to, to, to preach that wedding. And uh, it was a great time being with all of my siblings, cousins, step-neighbor-in-laws. Everybody was there. It was just a wonderful celebration north of the airport. And uh, all of our kids were home. Andrew shocked us. He wasn't even supposed to be here, and he just walks in the door at 10.30 at night, Friday night, and uh, we were sitting there exhausted, but our lives came alive. Our, our, our world changed at 10.30 Friday night, and we stayed up until 1, 1 a.m. laughing and talking, and it was great to, to have uh, Andrew. Jordan had been there a week with his girlfriend, and of course, Carissa came in for the wedding, uh, for our niece's wedding, so it was great. So it's been a pretty exhausting weekend uh, this morning. Uh, I drove from Olathe to the airport to Olathe to Topeka all before 8.30 this morning. So this sermon will either be really long or really short. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I've tried to get enough sugar in me to keep me going. So could I turn your attention to these very important statements? We call them our core values. And as I've explained to you before, a core value is something that is extremely important to an organization or a person. You have core values personally. You have core values as a married, married couple or as a family. And I think if you just kind of think in your mind, what are those things that you live by? What do you believe so strongly about that you would never change or turn away from? That's your core value. And if we had a conversation, we could easily begin to talk and pull those out of each other. But these are the core values that we have decided as a church board that are extremely important for us as a church. Could we read these together? Let's do it together. Ready? Biblical faithfulness, dependent prayer, authentic worship, creative evangelism, Christ-like discipleship, and loving relationships. I had the privilege when I started pastoring around 31 years ago uh, to pastor a church by the name of Grandview Church of the Nazarene in Missouri. I've pastored two churches by the name of Grandview Church of the Nazarene. I don't know how that happened. But 
uh, Grandview, Missouri needed a pastor, and I was just finishing seminary. So I was about 25 years old, 26, and uh, I had the, let's call it an honor, but it was a scary moment when I realized that about 12 of my seminary colleagues and their families would attend my church, and I would then become their pastor. But then it got worse. I realized that the Old Testament professor was sitting in my sanctuary. Then it got worse. I realized the New Testament professor was sitting in my sanctuary. So I just decided I, was, I couldn't preach from the Old Testament or the New Testament, so I was to preach from the intertestamental period. That was a joke, sorry. But I, w- I was just a young man, my very first church, a senior pastor, and here I had Dr. Lawhead, the Old Testament professor, and Dr. Weigelt, the New Testament professor, and I would study and I would just be so concerned how they would react. And of course, both of those men were just wonderful, godly, wise men, and they took their responsibility very serious to disciple young leaders. And so I purposely went to the New Testament professor, Dr. Weigelt, just a wonderful godly man, and I knew that I could learn from him. And so I I went to him and I I said, I said, Dr. Weigelt, I'm just a young seminary uh, student and I would love to invite you to be my mentor. I would I'd love for you, if, if you hear that I, I've, done, I've, I've said something wrong in my sermon, or if there's a, a leadership principle I could learn from you, or if you just want to talk through philosophy of ministry or the community or whatever it is, I invite that relationship. And he took it serious, and about once a year he would just say, hey, let's, let's have coffee together. And sometimes we would talk about what the board was doing, or sometimes we would talk about how I looked at a certain passage of the Scripture, and maybe there was a different way to see it. And I so loved being discipled by Dr. Weigelt. It was an honor for me to learn from him and be discipled from such a godly man. When Luke wrote the book of Acts... Often we see the book of Acts as kind of a history book. It was kind of a, we we often see it as an explanation of the new church's development and what a great story or stories are included in the book of Acts. But if you'll read the very first verse of chapter 1, it's a letter that that a, an older disciple of Christ by the name of Luke, who was a follower of Christ, was now writing to a young man that he was discipling by the name of Theophilus. And when I began to realize that this could also have been a, a teaching opportunity for older Luke to be explaining the development of the church to a young man that he was discipling, it kind of changed the way I saw the book of Acts. 
And as I just kind of open Acts and I begin to look at what Luke was explaining, it could have been very life-changing to Theophilus. He was talking about uh, how new leaders were brought in. Uh, if I just kind of thumb through these headings, it's, you know, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas and, and why and how the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in chapter 2 and then how Peter addressed the crowd and, and then in, in chapter 3 he talks about how Peter heals the crippled beggar and then Peter spoke to the onlookers that were watching and then how Peter and John preached the gospel to the Sanhedrin and then later in chapter 4 he begins to give the believers prayer and I can just see young Theophilus just shaking his head and agreeing and wow that's, that's interesting and he's learning and he's taking notes. He's becoming a, a, a disciple of Christ. Because of the actions, because of the teaching of Luke. Making disciples was extremely important in the New Testament. Discipleship was God's chosen method of spreading the good news through Jesus Christ. During his three years of ministry here on earth, Jesus spent the majority of his time with 12 men Every day he was with them, every event, every conversation, every joke, every time that they would go to bed, they would, they would say their prayers together or they would say goodnight and every morning they would wake up and say their prayers. Every meal he was talking to them constantly. And he gave them many convincing proofs that he was the Messiah that he said that he was. They watched his miracles. They talked together about prophecies. He illustrated to them forgiveness and hope and grace. He explained future events that were coming. He helped them to put in perspective what had happened in the past. And the disciples believed him. Though sometimes imperfectly, like we all do, Peter questioned Jesus. Later on, he denied Christ. James and his brother John sought for greater honor. Thomas doubted. Judas, we know how that ended. The scripture says in Matthew 28, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. This just was a great illustration of the humanity that were the disciples, just like us. And while he was on earth, Jesus drew, drew them aside, away from the crowds, to personally share his life and his experience with them. He explained to them the parables that confused them. He explained theology. He told stories to them, personal illustrations. He, he would do a miracle and then privately he would explain to them what that miracle was all about. Or he would explain to them the truth behind a parable that he just laid on everyone else and didn't explain it to them, but he explained it to the disciples. 
And then he would send them out to do ministry. He would give them assignments. First, he said, I want you to go out in large groups. Go out 70 at a time and, and do certain ministries. And then later, he said, I want you to go just two of you at a time and go as really small teams to accomplish certain things. He told them that he would be returning to his, fa his father following a painful death and miraculous resurrection. And then he gave them two amazing promises. First, that his disciples would do greater things than he. Now, I have a hard time wrapping my human brain around that promise. You too? Or is it just me? He said, you will do greater things than me. John 14, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Can you imagine? And then he said, not only you'll do greater things, but the Holy Spirit will indwell and empower the disciples. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. He said, you'll not only do greater things than I will, but I am going to empower you with the Holy Spirit. And one of his very last conversations with the disciples after his death and after his resurrection was quite important of, of a conversation. He said this, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now some questions. If these were some of Christ's very last words on earth, might they be extremely important for us to understand? If these words were in preparation for the greatest church growth movement in the history of the world, should they be important to us as we establish the core values of our church? Can I read to you the core value under Christ-like discipleship? This is our core value. It says, we believe that drawing all believers into a healthy and maturing relationship with Christ is a scriptural requirement. And then to equip them to live that faith boldly in every sphere of their life. Here's some discipleship questions. Number one, what does it mean to become a disciple of Christ? Well, the, uh, the, the, the term disciple was the most popular name for a follower of Christ uh, in the century right after Christ was resurrected. Being a disciple meant more than being a convert. It was more than just a church member. It, 
it was what we might consider an apprentice today. It was the equivalent term. A disciple attached herself or himself to a teacher, identified with that leader, that, that teacher, learned from him, and often lived with him, traveled with him. The disciple learned not just by listening, but they were required to do. It was a very active learning process. Our Lord called 12 disciples and taught them so that they might be able to teach others, Mark chapter 3 says. So a disciple is one who has believed on Jesus Christ and has expressed this faith by being baptized. He has accepted Christ as his personal Savior. He has made a public commitment to this new life in baptism. As we all know, and we've been talking about baptism, baptism is a public act signifying an inward work. It is saying God has done something very personal in my heart. I have made a very personal decision to follow Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. That is a very personal decision that I made by faith. Now it's time for me to make a public testimony that I will serve Christ and none other. I want everyone to know. In two weeks from today, we're going to have a baptism service. And uh, I would just encourage you, if you have made a personal decision to follow Jesus, you have accepted him as your personal Savior, and you would like to then take that next step to say, I want everybody to know, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. Would you just come to me and, and uh, let me know, or Pastor Tom, and, and we'll make sure that, you, that you're on that list Next Sunday morning, I'm going to have a class for, um, for those that are going to be baptized. We're going to be celebrating together uh, in two weeks, right? That'll be fun. A disciple is also one who seeks to become like their teacher. In ancient Judaism, the rabbis had their disciples. It was understood that the disciple wanted to replicate in themselves the life of the teacher. They wanted to learn so much from that, from that leader. So they wanted to think like their, their teacher. They wanted to act like their teacher. They wanted to teach like their teacher. They wanted to live their lives like their teacher. They even wanted to be identified as a disciple of that person. Often they would even dress like their teacher. If there was a certain color or a certain type of robe or maybe a, a certain type of hat that their teacher wore, they would begin to identify themselves just like their teacher was dressed. A disciple remains in the fellowship of the believers where he was taught the truths of the faith. The scripture says in Acts chapter 2, 41 through 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 
All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Notice, they ate together, they talked together, they ministered together, they shared together, they protected each other, right? They basically did life together as disciples of Christ. A disciple also leads others to Christ. John uh, W.R. Stott was just a a wonderful uh, writer and evangelism leader back in the mid-1900s. He writes this. He says, The church engages in evangelism today, not because it wants to or because it chooses to or because it likes to, but because it has been told to. Evangelistic inactivity is disobedience. It is easy to determine when something is aflame. It ignites other material. It is easy to determine when something is aflame because it ignites other people. Let me ask you, who are you igniting? Who are you setting on fire? Your, our primary responsibility as a disciple is to disciple others. That's your primary responsibility. You may... You may say, you know what, I'm gifted in praying for people. You may say, you know what, my gift is planting the seed. Others of us might say, well, I, 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 I can provide sunshine and encouragement and, and protection. And others might say, you know what, I'm really good at harvesting. I, 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 all of these are extremely important to a harvest, right? But the fact is, all of us need to be involved in every part of the process. The most important thing that you can do as a disciple is to disciple others. A disciple is actively involved in ministry. Now, can you imagine John, who was one of Jesus' best friends on earth, can you imagine John coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want you to know that I am one of your committed disciples. But I don't want any responsibility. Uh, you see, I, I don't have time. You see, Jesus, I, I'm at work on my boat fishing all the time. And then when I get off the boat, I've got to take my kids to soccer. And, and uh, I, I need to spend quality time with my family. I just won't have time to attend worship services. I don't have time to do ministry for you. I want to be your disciple, but I don't want to do anything for you. Can you imagine that happening? It sounds crazy to us, but we've probably heard that from people before. Jesus, I want to be your follower, but I really don't have time to do anything for you. Make a decision to truly become a disciple of Christ. 
You must show that you're serious about following. You're serious about representing Christ. You're serious about mirroring his holiness and being involved in discipling others. Don't just come to church. Get involved. Do ministry. Help to disciple others. We are desperate. Can I tell you we're desperate? Not for people to only be teachers or preachers or leaders. We need we need van drivers. Can I just, Dan, is there an amen in the house? We need, we have got so many kids coming on Thursday night to our teen group that we may have to start doing a second van. Isn't that great news? That's great news. Dan desperately needs some men and women who say, you know, I can drive and I can give up an hour or two on a Thursday night to make sure that our teens are getting to church. If you would like to do that, and you can actually drive, <laughs> which some of you I have concerns about. But we would love to have some help. We need some helpers in our Thursday night teen class. We need to start some new Bible studies. We, we need people who says, say, I, I can fix things, and I've got time on Tuesday mornings. I'm retired, or I've got an evening here and there. We have we have cleaning that needs to be done. We've got things that need to be fixed. We need administrative help. So I just encourage you, God has gifted you with certain strengths. He's given you a passion for certain things. And if you could step out and begin to disciple and get involved in ministry that way, would you please talk to me or Tom or, or, or any of us, Marcy, we'd love to, to talk to you, dream with you about what God may call on you to do. Second, becoming a disciple of Christ requires a public response. You see, Jesus' call to become a disciple required them to exercise their will in their response. Jesus calls Matthew. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed. Like some of you, Darla and I have thoroughly enjoyed watching the, the TV series, The Chosen. Any of you watched The Chosen yet? The Chosen is a, is a TV series that, that mostly focuses on the disciples and how they responded to Christ. Christ is certainly part of the story, but it... It shows the, the story of how those disciples wrestled with what God was, uh, what Christ was saying to them. And I just encourage you, if you don't know how to, to find that, we'd be glad to help you find it. But it's on YouTube. Just type in The Chosen and, and, and you'll find it. Matthew would have been a really, would have been a Jew, but now was working for the enemy, the Romans. He was a tax collector. And I can tell you, tax collectors were not friends of the Jews. He would have been taking money away from his own people and giving it to the enemy that had taken over their country. He was hurting fellow Jews by requiring them to pay extreme taxes. He was taking businesses away. He was, his word meant that you might go to prison. He would have been very wealthy. 
all of his needs would have been met, but my guess he would have been very lonely because you, you know that his Jewish friends weren't going to invite him over for the, a Thanksgiving meal, right? Now Jesus walks by his tax collection booth. And Jesus looks at him and says, Hey, Matthew, follow me. Follow me. Now, to Matthew, that meant leaving everything that he knew. For Matthew, that meant giving up a very lucrative job. For Matthew, that meant going back to rubbing shoulders with his own family, his own people, the Jews. Who is it that he's been stealing money from? Who is it that curses Matthew? Who would it have been that would throw stones or dung at Matthew if they could get by with hiding? It was the Jewish people. So when Jesus said, follow me, it was way more than just one of the Jews stepping out and saying, yeah, I'll I'll follow you, Jesus. He was giving up everything that he knew. It was quite a request for total faith for Matthew to become a follower of Jesus. It was huge. Have you purposely made a decision to follow Christ? in every area of your life? Only you can answer that. Have you made sure, after you made that decision, that everyone knows that you're a follower? Or would they be surprised if you told them you were a follower of Christ? If they're surprised, maybe we need to talk about that. Don't let anybody be surprised if you say, I follow Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Don't let them go, wow, <laughs> I'm shocked. You want them to go, you know what, I, I knew that about you. You might not have said it, but you acted different. You, you responded to that person. You, you used kind words. You, you, you're, you're loving to people. I knew something had to be different about you. Becoming a disciple requires a response, and it does require a public decision. But also, becoming a disciple of Christ requires total commitment. Jesus was quite explicit about the cost of following him. You see, discipleship requires a total commitment of life. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple, Jesus said. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And sacrifice is expected of disciples. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up my cross. He must deny himself 
and take up my cross. Not all of Jesus' followers were able to make such a commitment. In John chapter 6, it says, From this time many of his disciples turned back and did not follow him. That was very sad when I read that. And Paul says that becoming a disciple is like taking up your own cross. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian back during World War II in the 40s. And he wrote an entire book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he details the costliness of deciding to follow Jesus completely. I can tell you, following Jesus is not cheap. Following Jesus is not a, just a quick little thing. Just a minor point in your life. Following Jesus is expensive, extremely expensive. Following Jesus means everything. All of you. All of your time. All of your decisions. And that's exactly what Christ has invited us to do is to make a very expensive decision to follow him. And becoming a disciple of Christ is not a destination. It's a journey. No matter how old we are or how mature in the faith we are, discipleship is a constant growth. It's a constant journey. I'm seeing the greenings back in the back. Can we wave at them? Great to have you all. They haven't been able to come for, for several months because of some health challenges. But can I tell you, they're some of my heroes of the faith. For decades and decades, they've followed Jesus and if you sat down with them right now and you would ask them, are you learning something new about God? I promise you, they'll have a conversation with you. After decades of serving Jesus, they're looking in the word and they're seeing something new. They're praying and God is speaking to them in fresh ways. Right? Am I not telling the truth? I know I am. It's not a destination You've, you will never make it. It's a journey. Darla and I have served Christ. She accepted Christ when she was four and a half days old. <laughs> she was three when she accepted Christ. Four. And I was some, you know, before ten, eight, I don't know exactly when. But we're still learning. And she was four just 20 years ago. <laughs> I know you're trying to do the math, but, but we're still learning, right? It's not a destination. It's a journey. Paul, who is an elder, experienced, traveled the world. 
He was in jail, out of jail. He was at the end of his life. And now he was writing a letter to believers that lived in a town by the name of Philadelphia. And it's a book that we call the Philippians. He said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Can you hear the old man speak? And so, he says, somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this, he says, or have already arrived at my goal, but I Press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, he says, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press Toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I love that passage. I love the word pictures this elderly saint describes his walk with Christ. He says, I want to know Christ. He's been a believer for many decades by now. He said, I want to become like Christ. I want to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I have yet arrived at this goal, but I want to press on. I want to take hold of what Christ has taken a hold of me. In order to take a hold of Christ, he says, I will press toward the goal to win the prize. It's this picture of a saint leaning into the wind with all intentionality all determination, all stick to to effectively walk the journey of becoming more and more and more and more like Christ. A disciple also disciples others. Jesus had disciples. And Luke had Theophilus, Theophilus, Paul had Timothy. Who do you have? Who is it that, that Christ has placed on your heart? Who is it that comes in your mind that perhaps is in the sanctuary right now? Who is it that as you're having Bible studies, you have this longing to tell someone else what you're learning? Can I ask you, please intentionally choose someone to disciple. Intentionally do that. Don't let it be an accident. Pray that God would draw you to someone to disciple. One Sunday evening, William Booth, who was a, an amazing evangelist in the Chicago area uh, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, his name was William Booth. He was walking uh, in London, actually, with his son. Bramwell was his son. He was only 12 years old. 
And the father surprised his son by walking by a saloon and inviting his son to go in with him. Now this was a leading pastor and evangelist. And he invites his son to go into the saloon with him. The place was crowded with men and women of the world, many of them bearing on their faces the marks of vices and crime and, and, and sickness. Many were already drunk. The fumes of the alcohol and tobacco was just, had penetrated the air and it really hit this young boy in the face, this culture that was so opposite of what his dad taught. Willie, his dad said, these are our people. These are the people that I want you to live for and to bring to Christ. These are our people. I want you to live for them and bring them to Christ. Years later, Bramwell or Willie Booth wrote, that impression never left me. His dad was intentionally discipling his son. Can I ask you, what has been your intentions in discipling your children? Last weekend, Darla and I went to a, a Christian concert, and, and a speaker was very passionate. He had a ministry that focused on helping children, both in schools, public schools, Christian schools, and Christian homes, to be taught a Christian worldview. And he told the story of how a young man was just ready to leave his father and mother's home, the nest that they had built for him. They were wonderful, godly parents. And they invited the son to a, a, a dinner at a restaurant right before he was to leave the home. And the mom and dad pulled out this piece of paper. And it was pretty wrinkled and old. And they, they showed the son. They said, son, when you were born, we wanted to make sure that we taught you some very important things you and I might call them core values. But it's a very long list of things that they knew their son had to learn or experience before he left. It was very important for them. And they showed the list to the son and they said, son, how did we do? And these several things that we have not yet been able to teach you, how can we help you learn them before you leave? And as he looked through that list, he saw in his mind stories of how his dad would take him to a conference on purpose without saying to the son why it was so that the dad could then check the box, I've taught my son this. And the mom would teach the son how to do a certain thing in the home or a certain thing about God, and they would then check the box. And that son was so impressed that their, his mom and dad intentionally discipled him. Let me ask you, moms, dads, grandparents, 
What are you intentionally teaching your children? Are you making a list? What's important to you? What's the scripture saying that you want to make sure that your kids know? If you don't have kids yet, you will begin making your list. There are some things that you need to teach your kids. Grandparents, begin to recognize there are certain core values that the scripture speaks about that you need to talk to your kids about. Might it be, might it be that God has purposely placed you in a certain group of people? Might it be that God has put certain family members around your table or an individual on your mind because God wants you to intentionally live out the gospel in front of them so that they could then wrestle spiritually with certain things that the Holy Spirit has already begun to move on their hearts. Might it be that God has been very intentional in making sure that you're with someone else around a table, sitting with coffee in your hand, so that you could then lead them to Christ, disciple them, so that they then can disciple others. Would you please stand? Our core value of Christ-like discipleship will mean certain things for Fairlawn Church of the Nazarene. Christ-like discipleship will mean that we will teach our people the importance of spiritual disciplines. Daily study and purposeful application of God's Word is important to us. Purposeful creation of community and fellowship, small groups and fellowship dinners and any excuse to come together to love on each other. We're going to be talking about that next week when we deal with loving relationships. But protecting and praying for and discipling each other are important because Christ-like discipleship means that we do it together. Intentional prayer and even interceding for each other. These are all things that disciples of Christ do. But number two, Christ-like discipleship will mean we will intentionally look and act like our Savior. It unfortunately has been misused, but what if we truly began asking, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus respond? Would Jesus be involved in that ministry? How would Jesus respond to this decision by our politicians, and how would he then talk about that? In what ways would Jesus show love to that one who just decided that he was a she? Or how would he care for the one who has just had an abortion? How would Jesus respond? And how could I then learn how to do the same? You see, be, becoming a church with a core value of Christ-like discipleship means that we begin to mirror the actions of Jesus. Jesus. 
we mirror his holiness. That's why I, I just want to say a, a certain holiday is coming up in a couple days. We are God's people. We mirror his holiness. We don't mirror witchcraft. We don't mirror evil in this world. We mirror Christ. And number three, we will recognize that Christ-like discipleship is costly. It's expensive to be a disciple of Christ. Our Savior requires our first. He requires our best. And I know that I may step on toes and I want you to know that I love you and I, I have to tell you the truth. Some of us might not be giving God our best and maybe not even our first. Maybe it's just the leftovers and the seconds. And once you fill up your schedule with entertainment and once, and then you decide if you have time to spend time in his word or attend a worship service, that's not costly. And some may even pay bills and go to McDonald's and spend time enjoying our money and, and, and then realize at the very end we don't have anything to give to God. That's not expensive. And we're determined here at Fairlawn Church of the Nazarene that we're going to give God our first, our best, our time and our talents and our treasures. We're going to give him everything we have first. And last, we will intentionally disciple people into leadership. Who are you discipling? Who's God laid on your heart? I, I feel God has been leading me recently to identify certain young people, to take certain responsibilities over for themselves as I walk alongside them and slowly give them more and more responsibility. It's called discipleship. And it's not just pastors who do it. It's not just teachers and leaders. It's all of us putting our arms around others and helping them. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Therefore, we believe here at Fairlawn Church of the Nazarene in Christ-like discipleship. We believe that drawing all believers into a healthy and maturing relationship with Christ is a scriptural requirement. And then to equip them to live that faith boldly in every sphere of their lives.
Paul's personal passion as he came to the end of his life was for others to become Christ-like disciples. And I'm sure he would agree with his words being given as this benediction. I want you to become, I want you to disciple others to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want you to help others have the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. I want you to become like him in death. And I want you to help others to somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace for he's already gone before you. You're dismissed.